Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We're lawyers, mothers, and co-hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. We have more in common than divides us. In a world that defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. The choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Nuanced Life. We're going to acknowledge today that it feels like a lot of things are just falling apart around us. It's okay. Everybody is feeling this to different degrees. And there is no sense in pretending it's not happening. So we're just going to go right into some pain and grief and suffering that accompanies loss and death. And uh, we're also going to talk about the pain that is providing meals for ourselves through all of this. Yeah, it's always important for me in moments like this to remember, like, it's not only that everybody feels like that right now. Humans have felt like this before and worse and worse. So whether you need to channel the I'm not alone right now or the I'm not alone, my ancestors had it way worse at certain parts in history, whatever gets you through, it's okay. Well, let's begin with a message that Katie left me because Katie, I think, is on to something that so many people experience and there is not a good label for. And that is when you reach all my friends are getting divorced years old. Mm-hmm. It happens to everybody, right? Where everybody kind of married within a certain window of time and then everybody gets to like that seven to 10 year anniversary and you start to see relationships ending that you were there for the wedding. You can't believe they're ending. You understand why it's happening, but it tends to happen in waves. At least that's been my life experience. And it is really Hard, And it's one of those things that even though it's not about you, it is an intense personal effect on you. Well, sometimes, I mean, it really, it really, I mean, if this couple is an important part of your social circle, an important part of your kids' lives, like the divorce is not about you, but the divorce really does affect you. And I think there's like grief that goes along with that. Because especially, like I said, if they're a really big part of your social circle, then that means your life is going to change dramatically, too. And so you have to give space for that. Absolutely. And I think sometimes it can feel like you have to choose a person. Mm-hmm. And that's the worst. But sometimes it's true. Oh, it's so bad. But it's sometimes, don't you think sometimes it's true? Like well, you legit have to pick. You read my mind because if you don't choose a person, sometimes the result is that you lose both people. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just miserable and no one prepares you for this. You know, no one wants to like whisper in your ear the summer that you have 20 weddings. Hey, just remember the percentages. Like it's awful. But but it is like a thing that I think if we prepared a little bit more for holding all of that loosely, we might be 
better able to adjust to it when it happens. I have a weird twist on this classic. I don't really know better for years. So the summer after I got married, maybe like the next two summers after I got married, I experienced a lot of divorce. Not because my friends were getting divorced, but because all my aunts and uncles were getting divorced. Okay, so when I got married, both of my mother and my father are the oldest of four, and the three aunts and uncles on both sides were all married. (laughs) And after two years after I got married, two aunts and uncles were still married. But I watched four couples in my family. Like, and these were people that were married, if not before I was born, when I was little. And it was so hard. I think one thing I learned about divorce through watching all my aunts and uncles get divorced. When it's your family, you don't really get to pick who you keep. I I, I hate that sometimes because I know <laughs> I know there are moments I've had friends that are like, but I want to keep the sister-in-law. Well, doesn't work like that. And I think I, what I really learned is I thought divorce was like roll of the dice, you know, like, just 50%, even though I don't think that's, I don't think that statistic is right for our generation anymore. I think it's gone down quite a bit, but it felt like that before I got married and watching that like sort of intense period of all my aunts and uncles getting divorced. I realized like, it's not really just chance. The best way I can say it in the, I don't know if this is the kindest way to say it, but the only way I know to articulate it is often people especially close couples that in your life that you watch get divorced, you'll see like, oh, there was a reason they got married that that probably wasn't the best from the beginning. You know what I mean? Like, I think sometimes life throws curveballs and it just puts the marriage under stress it cannot sustain. But at least in my experience, so often I think like, you got married for really bad reasons. And I think this is also a generational breakdown to a certain extent. But I don't know if it comforted me, but it felt like less like you were just thrown against the waves of chance and more like, you know, there are reasons, reasons that it went badly, reasons that both people will be better off afterwards and understanding that like, you just, you just want the best for the individuals. Because I think sometimes like the couple itself can, can feel like it's its own being, especially inside of a family like that, like an extended family. But it's not. Marriage is always composed of two individuals and their hearts and minds and well-beings, especially if they're family, even if they're friends, are really what we should all be concerned with. Not how that marriage fits in the narrative of our own lives, but how those individuals can best thrive and succeed. I think what I've learned when these waves have hit in my life is to recognize that a marriage doesn't have to last to have been a successful marriage in some way. Because I look at some of my friends who've been through a divorce and it has made them part of who they are. And it's part of, you know, it's just a part of their story that shouldn't be erased because it didn't last forever or because people changed or made different choices later or whatever. It's really given me more of an appreciation for just the way that every relationship changes you in some way and you needed it right for whatever reason it's it's easy to say well that was a mistake but I don't think it was a mistake for a lot of the people in my life I just think it was a chapter 
Mm. or several chapters, you know. And yes, there was something after, but it was still really great for them in ways, even as the way that it ends is often, under the best of circumstances, intensely painful. Well, and that's what I was going to say. My friend Kirsten told me once, like, when she got divorced, it was like, she was like, it was a good, easy divorce. The best I could hope for. And it was still awful. And I think that's something to really remember if somebody in your life is going through this, is it's just really hard. I mean, I think that part of the reason it's hard is because we haven't internalized as a culture just what you said. Is relations can can be in its success without continuing forever. And we can all laugh at Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin for inventing the term conscious uncoupling. But you know what? They were doing us a favor and they were pushing our thinking a little forward on this whole thing. Other parts of the world don't treat marriage and especially the the dissolution of a marriage as an epic failure. And that's what's so hard on people, even when they know it's for the best. And even when it goes well, I think it's because of the societal expectations that and the societal narrative that if the marriage fails, you are a failure. Or if the marriage ends, just comes to its natural end, that that means there was a failure. And I, I don't think that's true. I think you're exactly right. And I think, you know, part of the reason you see marriage rates go down and go down and go down is because we have not shifted our narrative about that, our societal narrative about that. And I think everybody would be happier. Marriages would be successful, more successful. More people would get married if we would just pump the brakes on that a little bit. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm so glad that you mentioned Gwyneth Paltrow because I think what we should call this is a decoupling wave. Mm, okay, so like when this that. comes up in your life, if you need a term for it, let's just call it a decoupling wave. Lots of people around mm-hmm. you making change. The second thing that came to mind for me as you were talking is that it's not just societal expectations. It's our own expectation. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't enter any friendship thinking, I hope that this is good for like a couple of years. I mean, that's just, mm-hmm. you know, we don't approach anything like that. And then a marriage just comes with so much more. And here's the truth of it. Even a marriage that lasts until death do we part breaks your heart a gazillion times over. Mm-hmm. There is no way to really love someone without it being incredibly painful. And so I feel like the role of friends when people are getting divorced, depending on the intensity of the friendship, is to be really understanding of how painful it is. And that's why we shouldn't be all judgy when you do have to pick someone. Because mm-hmm. that is often what is going to be needed because it hurts so bad. Even when both people agree that the divorce is the right step forward, it hurts so bad. And so let's not be on our high horses when someone says, no, you've got to pick. Yeah, I think there's just so much high horsing because it's there a is. so much high horsing. And listen, I'm not I'm getting on my high horse about high horsing when we all know I love a high horse. OK, but. <laughs> I think that, you know, I had a friend recently who was talking about a difficult moment in her life and how people in the community really rallied around this person who made a big mistake but had not rallied around her during a time of grief. And I thought, well, yeah, because... And I said this to her, yeah, because everybody gets to feel good about themselves standing by the person who just made a mistake, but they have to confront their own mortality to stand around you during your own grief. And I think with divorce, 
because it's a moment of grief, but it's so easily reframed as like a mistake or someone's messing up, depending on the circumstances. Like instead of just standing with our friends and saying, I know this is hard and I know this is a period of grief and knowing that and and facing the vulnerability that our own marriages are flawed and could end and just standing in that vulnerability, we like to get on our high horse. Love a high horse. Let's just get on that high horse and we can think about how much better our marriage is and how we would never do that and on and on and on and on and on. And I just think it's so common for everybody to surf the decoupling wave like that. And if we're conscious of that sort of reaction in ourselves, it's easier to leave that alone. Leave that alone. <laughs> just know that if your friend, if a, you feel a decoupling wave coming on, that you are going to feel vulnerable and probably have to face really maybe even some hard truths inside your own marriage. I think that is pretty common when lots of people are getting divorced, that you start to look around and ask yourself questions and you have fears and anxieties that come to the surface. And so just be conscious of that. Like, just be conscious of that and do not put that on your friend who's going through a divorce or use that as an excuse to run away from your friend who's getting a divorce. I think that's exactly right. And part of why this needs a term, because it does have such a reverberation inside your own head. Like, in whatever direction that is, the need to judge the need to like question your own marriage, the need to go into existential crisis mode. Like, what are we all even doing anyway? Oh my God, how (laughs) old are we that this is where we are? Like, whatever, right? Uh, There is that reverberation. And I think there are a thousand normal reactions, but like everything else, being aware of those reactions and able to kind of label them for yourself and know that that's what's going on makes a really big difference. I just had a really like emotional week for me. I'm exhausted from it. (laughs) And one thing I realized this past week is that what was mostly driving my emotions was a very particular form of fear. Mm. But until I was able to give that the name, oh, I am afraid right now. And here are the things I'm afraid of. I was just stuck. And nothing has really changed, but knowing that fear was driving the bus has helped me figure out what to do next and process it. And I just think that's a really helpful reminder around a decoupling wave. Okay, a lot of things are going to come up for me. Let me give them some names so that I can sort through them instead of being in the morass. Because what we do, I mean, this is kind of to the high horse point, what we do when we're in a morass of uncategorized emotions is create a bunch of drama. Mm -hmm. We have to be the hero for our friend, or we have to suddenly be a victim inside our own marriage, or that other person in the relationship was awful. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And we're going to run around talking about how awful they were. Like, we just, we go to drama when we don't know what to do with our big feelings. Well, and I think, you know, I love how Elizabeth Gilbert talks about that. (laughs) I love how she always says, Like, she welcomes fear. She talks about the creative process, but I think this is applicable here. She's like, it can be in the car. It just can't be in the driver's seat. Like, you can say, like, hi, I see you. Nice to see you. Get in the back seat. You can stay in the car. I know you're a part of this, but, like, you can't drive. I'm sorry. And, look, let's be realistic. There are going to be some divorces 
in which one spouse acted terribly. And if you are like me, you are going to need to find a way to express that. And I encourage you to express that in the privacy of your own bedroom to your own spouse inside the cone of silence. Like no one's saying you can't like work process other people's sort of behavior. I think that's just a normal part of human psychology to say, oh my gosh, this is awful. Don't you think that's awful? That's a perfectly acceptable conversation to have like with your own spouse inside the cone of silence because you know I always say (laughs) I always say like some of this is it's like celebrity divorces like some of this is like us processing what do we actually think is okay what do we actually think is acceptable behavior as a community or as a person or as a spouse like I just think that's an inevitable part of this I just think you have to be so careful about where you're doing that processing I totally agree with that. And I think as you as we process it, a step in the processing is to also say to yourself, but man, I have no idea what's going on in that person's head and heart. No idea. I have no idea what examples of relationships this person has seen. I have no idea what this person's hopes and dreams are. I have no idea who this person believes himself or herself or their self to be. So at some point... I got to let go of the mystery of human connection and my role as judge in it. And I also think it's important as you're doing that processing to recognize that the person who did something that you find abhorrent could still be the person you pick to stay in relationship with. Because your job is very much not to decide who has the moral high ground coming out of a decoupling. Well, listen, I've watched enough of these marriages, some that decoupled and some that stayed together. I have learned when someone behaves in a way, especially if it's shocking, I always use the phrase like, it looks like they blew up their own life. That is the act of a person in a deep amount of pain. Deep, deep, deep deep-seated pain. No one does that. No one blows up their own life unless they are in a lot of pain. And, you know, I always think of Oprah. I'm one of my favorite things I've ever heard her say, which is um, during her 10th anniversary special, she was interviewing someone and they're like, basically, don't you think I'm a horrible person? And she said, look, you deal with your pain your way. I deal with my pain my way. And I just think, listen, you just got to keep channeling that energy if you're in the middle of a decoupling wave. Well, that's right. And that's why we have the judgy conversation in the privacy of our home, not out in the Mm -hmm. world. I think... You know, the way we talk about relationships is so, I'm trying to think, like, prehistoric almost. (laughs) Like, our understanding (laughs) of it is so unevolved. When we say, like, well, once a cheat, always a cheat. Well, like, that is usually true because the person hasn't processed any of that pain in a healthy way. They are repeating patterns to deal with that pain. Now, our beloved friends don't have to invite that pain into their lives. You know, so we we try to to notice patterns and be aware of them and react accordingly. But just the entire way that we respond when people are going to marry somebody and we don't think it's a good idea. Okay, we don't know. And they get divorced and we thought the marriage was wonderful, but we didn't know. There's just the more we can make space for. I do not have the full picture here. And even if I did, I wouldn't have it. It, it helps us ride the decoupling waves. I just, I think this is a very useful term that we've coined here. Well, and for what it's worth, 
Nobody's a, like an island. No marriage is an island and no person inside of it is an island. There's a lot of gender stereotypes, patriarchy, societal pressures, cultural norms, cultural pressures that all exist and weigh upon every person and every marriage. And so i to keep that in mind, too. And that's why these things come in waves, because it is sort of a stage of life thing where you're getting married and a stage of life thing when you start to think, how long can I do this? And a stage of life thing when everybody's having kids and then the kids put stress on the marriage and then everybody kind of assesses, okay, can the kid handle this at this point? I mean, they happen in waves because of where you are in your life and external factors. I mean, I was fixing to say, it's not just going to be a stage of life. We're going to have a global pandemic decoupling wave, you best believe. Well, that's right. And and systemic racism, there are so many things that are happening right now that are just dislodging that you know that we're going to have a wave of people who say, on the other side of this, this is not the relationship for me. And, And again, I think the best thing we can all do around that is recognize that those were chapters that were necessary. And we got to welcome our people into the next chapters from the most gracious place that we can. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We have a request for advice from a listener anonymously. Her father died unexpectedly late last year, extremely unexpectedly, and she was very close to her father. His death, she says, was preventable, and she says, I partially blame him for it. I'm sure that will sound cold to some listeners, but I've decided the only way through grief is radical honesty. And I think we Mm -hmm. should park there for a second and give Mm -hmm. this listener a high five because... That's exactly right. It doesn't sound cold to me at all. This listener found her father after he had been dead for over eight hours. She had to tell the family, call 911, speak with first responders, the whole thing. She says, a month after he died, I started a new day job that I simply adore and at which I excel. Six weeks after that, the world shut down because of COVID. As a result, I haven't been able to receive a specific type of therapy intended to treat acute trauma because it has to be done in person, and I haven't been able to work with the students I volunteer with through a local school organization in the same capacity. Zoom just isn't the same. They were basically my entire reason for living after my dad died, and I found tremendous comfort in being useful to them. I'm taking social distancing very seriously. I am also single and live alone. I'm still sometimes interacting with my mother and siblings who live in town, but I haven't seen anyone outside this immediate family who lives in my hometown since March. I really, really miss my friends. She says, I am very privileged by current standards, and simultaneously, my life is a mess. So many of the typical means by which we cope with grief are straight out the window because of the pandemic. I'm having a difficult time connecting with my mother. I feel as though I do not deserve my grief in her eyes. 
She urges me to be grateful that I got so much more time with my father than my siblings, but all I see when I think of him is the way I found him. It's the first thing I think of in the morning and the last thing I think of at night. Here's the big problem. While I've never been a traditionally religious person, I have always found such comfort in the idea of something bigger than us in the universe, which I'll call God for the purpose of this message. I'm struggling so hard with how the world it currently is, both on the whole and for me as an individual. How can it coexist with a loving and benevolent God? My dad was the best person I know. He did not deserve to die. George Floyd didn't deserve to die. The world didn't deserve to suffer through a pandemic. Millions of people did not deserve to lose their jobs. I didn't deserve to find my dad. My siblings deserved more time with him. My mom deserved to grow old with him. And yet the thought of living in a meaningless universe without hope or miracles or an arc toward goodness is terrifying. If given a choice between atheism and faith, I choose faith. I just don't know how to get there right now. How on earth do you find your faith in the middle of a world that is on fire? And if you can't... How do you find meaning in life anyway? I have lots to say on this. It is almost totally and completely uh, lifted from the pages of a book that particularly changed my faith called When Bad Things Happen to Good People by Rabbi Harold Kushner. It was life-changing for me because he so brilliantly walks through the logic of God does not control human events. There's just simply no way to think God can do something without also acknowledging all the times that God didn't do something. And so it just finally gave me a piece of the puzzle to that mournful but I don't deserve this. He didn't deserve this. Nobody deserves this question that had haunted me probably since the shooting at my high school. If it had ended there and said, and if he had just said like, God doesn't interfere, then there wouldn't have been any real ongoing journey of faith for me, but he doesn't stop there. And he says, God does not interfere, but God is also not absent. And God is present in your grief and he or she or it or whatever, just as heartbroken as you are. And you are not alone. And sometimes it will feel like that presence is the only thing that can bear the full weight of your grief. But to know that you are not alone and that that presence is just as heartbroken as you are by what has happened, and to finally release the idea that I am praying in supplication to someone that could or could not choose to do something, and just to release that was, it was life-changing for me. And it let me move on in my life with a, a faith that I think I always understood on sort of a cellular level, but I really needed somebody to put words to. And so, you know, I can, I cannot truly cannot recommend that book highly enough. I think it is one of the best meditations on grief out there in the world. My faith is most resilient with a giant dose of, I don't know, mixed in. And I think depending on the stage of grief that you find yourself in, I don't know is maybe the best we can do. 
I think it's right to question why things happen. I think it's right to say, what kind of system is has been designed here that would allow what seems like such random pain to result? I think there's something holy about I don't know in the midst of grief. And in the midst of the kind of grief that surrounds us every single day if we take a moment to pay attention. And so for me, I, I really appreciate and agree with everything Sarah said. And I also don't always feel that inside the way that I wish that I did. I don't always feel the presence of God in those moments. I would love to tell you that I did. It kind of makes me feel inadequate. There's a there's like a Sunday school attendee in me that hurts a little bit saying that out loud. But it's true. I don't always feel it. And where I've come to, at least at this point in my faith journey, is that's okay. Because the work of my life is to just be as present with my life as I can be. I think the more present I am, the more willing I am to feel whatever it is, the closer I get to that place of believing that God is as heartbroken as I am, that God is not absent. I can believe that more when I don't push myself to believe it every second. I am truly sorry for everyone who is experiencing this level of intense and present immediate grief who can't get the care that they really desire to manage that grief right now. And so I'm just holding this listener in my heart, and I know that many of you are too. And I hope that even if you can't feel that, that you can on some level know that that there is an outpouring of love around you right now. Shifting gears a little bit, we got an email from Emily. It makes me laugh. First of all, she has a commemoration. She has decided to take a gap year between college and grad school in which plans to learn how to appropriately deal with stress. Good job, Emily. Man, what what an agenda for a gap year, girl. This may not seem like a big deal, but this is a huge for me and honestly quite daunting. After a year debating whether I should do it or not, I committed to it last spring and now it's here and I'm going to do it. I am a perfectionist, something I've been working on, and I have a fear of being lazy. This fear is both that I will be lazy and fail to achieve anything meaningful in my life and also that people will perceive me as being lazy when I'm not. This last part I know I have no control over, but emotionally it always hurts me when people ask me, are you ever going to want to get a job? Because I've never been employed before. I've been a full-time college student for the past five years and I've done so much that I, as well as my friends and family, are proud of. I had two majors, three minors. I had the opportunity to study abroad. I had two internships, one of which was in D.C., and I graduated with a 3.8 GPA. Yet I still often feel like I won't be able to get anywhere in life and that I really am lazy. I just hide it well. I have been stressed for years to know that it is bad for me in every way possible. In the past, when I've tried to relax, I just felt like I'm procrastinating. So I'm going to take a gap year. I'm going to work on managing my stress, and I'm going to start seeing a therapist, something I know I should have years ago. I'm going to practice telling myself that I don't constantly have to be producing something in an effort to prove to myself that I'm not lazy and that what I produce does not define my worth. I'm going to practice becoming comfortable with honestly not being around people and telling them to mind their own business when they start judging my life choices. And last but not least, I'm going to learn to read for fun again because it's something that I have missed dearly. I'm going to slow down and learn how to better take care of myself, even though it scares me. I love this commemoration. Emily, girl, let me just let me just lay something out for you. Okay, I'm 38 years old. And I have had a real life 
come into the office, nine to five job, like pay unemployment insurance on your your tax. See, I don't even know what it's called because I've done it for like 18 months in my entire life, entire life. And I totally get those voices. I was struggling them and talked about it on Instagram when I started this podcast. And, you know, I think so much of that is a narrative left over from a time in history that does not exist anymore. Uh, especially, I think that, you know, we still have a lot of parents and parental figures who have a vision of career and work that <laughs> is ju- it's just not, it's not, a, it's not so much a thing anymore. I know that voice is so powerful and loud saying, this is what it looks like when you are a productive member of society. But what I realize now is just because I didn't have sort of the check the box nine to five, I was still a productive member of society. And I was doing something really important that led me to this point in my life where the work I do is fulfilling, just makes me feel um, productive and happy and empowering and just every good adjective. So don't let that narrative get in your head. I think taking a gap year to really unpack some of that stuff so that you can move into the rest of your life unburdened by all that is truly brilliant. The best advice I've ever heard is don't worry about, you know, finding your passion, just build some skills. You can take a gap year, work on those things and build skills without having to quote unquote, be productive or have a job or not be, I don't even, I don't, I just don't know many lazy people. I don't, I don't know where that word, I don't know what that word would even look like applied to a human being, but I think what you're doing is really, really smart. I agree as someone who is uh, 39 and still working on this. My therapist today assigned me the task of taking a retreat alone to do nothing. So I think it's really smart that you're doing this earlier in life than I did, Emily. The other thing that I was thinking about as Sarah was talking is I went to a parenting session at church where we were defining the values that are important to us and our children. And in a room of, I don't know, 15 people or so, I was the only person who did not write hard work down as a value that is important to me to instill into my children. And I think that's because... I see now that that is so culturally ingrained that my real work has been stepping back from that instead of stepping into it. And I think that's true for most children. I agree with Sarah. I don't know a lot of people who are just cruising through life in a lazy way. Do I know people who have very different priorities than I do about their time? Absolutely. And do I know people who work less hard than I do? For sure. But I don't feel judgmental about that anymore at all, because I think we just are we have to work so hard to undo the idea that we should always be working hard at something. I mean, listen, and it's so gendered. My best friend in the world has five children. She has five of them. And she is always calling herself lazy. And I'm like, you have got to stop this. What are you talking about? (laughs) Like, you couldn't be lazy if you wanted to. Like, it's not even available to you. I think that there is this idea that if I am not doing what other people think I should be doing, especially as a woman, that means I'm lazy. And Lord, we just need to to let that go. I'm going to let it go. So Emily also had two advice questions, and this is where it gets really funny. Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sarah, Emily's question for you is about how she feels righteously angry about the world very often and regularly <laughs> wants to tear everything down and fix it herself. And she has been told to deal with these strong emotions through exercise. And she gets that. But she also really wants to feel like she's doing something to affect bigger change in the world. And she says, Sarah, how do you deal with your righteous anger and your tear it down feelings? <laughs> um, I mean, you should probably find your Beth to balance you out. It's real helpful. It's a good energy supplement to just be like, shh, shh. Sometimes I feel like Beth is like, hey, 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 shh. <laughs> I hope I don't make um, you feel shushed ever. I hope that's not a- shush. No, that's different. Okay. Not like shush. More like, you know, like you do to a baby, like shh, like settle, settle. Yeah. But I do think like, you know, I've talked about this before. Joining uh, Moms Demand Action really helped my righteous anger and sense of helplessness in the face of gun violence like knowing exactly where to channel certain things helps but honestly i think as an enneagram she talks about how she's an enneagram one with a nine wing the biggest thing for me especially my enneagram journey is reminding myself constantly is not my sole responsibility to fix my righteous anger comes up a lot when i get this sense of like i gotta fix it it's on me to fix it and so i think the best advice about dealing with those that particular set of emotion and our particularly specific Enneagram profile is to really check in with, am I righteously anger, angry at the injustice or do I feel a frenetic energy because it is my job? I feel like it's my job to fix it because it's just that's not true and that's not helpful that it is my sole responsibility to fix it. While this question was not directed to me, can I just add one thing as a person who does love to fix when you ask, how can I be part of bigger change in the world? What I wish everybody on earth could understand is that you can't help but change the world. You are doing that. If you do nothing but get out of bed and feed yourself and go to sleep at night every day, you are changing the world in a way. And I think that the worst things we do to each other involve feeling like we have greater responsibility than living a good life in the life that we have. Because that does change the world. Taking this gap year, Emily, and working on your emotions and your health about the way you manage yourself, that is world-changing work. That is enough. That is hard work. Do you know how few people say, I'm going to work on myself for a minute? so that I can do everything else better. Every person you interact with for the rest of your life will be impacted by you taking this gap year. So you're already doing that. If you find nonprofit organizations or advocacy groups or a candidate you want to work for, amazing. But every step you take in the course of your life attuned to how can you leave this place better than you found it will do that. 
And I just think we all got to take a little pressure off about that. No, and I mean, think about how how different would the world be if everybody did that? If everybody was like, time out. We're all going to just work on how we pro- how we process our stress. Or, time out. We're going to really get some therapy for our trauma. I mean, we're good. Honest to God, there's not a whole lot of work left to do, I think. I really believe that, that. Yeah. We would be like a step from utopia. So Emily's question for me is uh, she'd like to know how to enjoy cooking. She just doesn't care for it. Emily, you could also just be like me and marry a man who cooks, girl. Come on. Or a woman. I don't know. Whatever, whatever floats your boat. Now, here is the problem, Emily. I am not good at regular everyday cooking. I do not enjoy it. I am at a point during this quarantine situation where every time it's time to eat, I'm angry at someone. (laughs) So I struggle with the everyday cooking. What I love about cooking is when it gets to not be about the eating at all. And it is just about the sensory aroma, like experience of creating something and building flavor and seeing the food change It's just the process that I love, but you don't get to have that process every time you make a meal. So the way that I deal with everyday cooking, which I enjoy so much less than being in it, I don't care if I eat it cooking, is to plan ahead so that I don't get decision fatigue, to keep a really simple like framework for what I'm going to make. So... You know, I'm always going to have a fresh fruit. I'm always going to have a fresh vegetable. I'm probably always going to have a cooked vegetable and then some kind of main thing. That's where we're rolling. And knowing that takes to me the process that is so obnoxious about making food every single day is just the relentlessness of the decisions that have to be made. So if I have a plan and some scaffolding on which I'm going to place that plan, then it becomes much much less annoying well unless i'm i'm just a bystander to this journey but watching my husband for you know 20 years almost learn to cook and love to cook i think it's like the better his skills got in certain areas the more he enjoyed it and i know the true like barrier to me cooking is i don't like chopping because i don't know how to do it so my advice or I didn't like chopping for so long because I didn't realize we had terrible knives or like my mom has terrible knives. So I think really, if you want to cook and enjoy it, an investment and you'd only need one, one good knife and like some time on YouTube (laughs) looking at chopping and how to chop would get you a long way. That and maybe like a meat thermometer. I really think like hating to chop vegetables and overcooking your like meat is the two biggest issues I see as someone who eats the food of someone who has solved those issues. Does that make sense? A good knife, 100%. Totally agree. I also think a good meat thermometer is really helpful. If I were in a situation where I didn't have young kids, I would get a cookbook and just work my way through it in this situation. That way there are no decisions to make. You're just working your way through it and you're going to build the skills along the way. Sarah's right. You can YouTube everything. And you want to get a cookbook that is about fresh herbs and a squeeze of lime or lemon on everything. Because once you get into those, those 
real elements of flavor and your food feels beautiful and it feels like you've cared for yourself the way that you would get cared for at a restaurant, that's when it's really fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You got it. You got it, Emily. You're going to be great at this. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you for continuing to share your big feelings about everything, your celebrations, your tragedies, everything in between. I feel like we got something solved today, Sarah. Yes, we definitely got something solved today. I, I think if nothing for inventing the phrase decoupling wave, like we've contributed to the world. So keep all of your commemorations and advice questions coming. We'll be back with you again next week and on Pantsuit Politics between now and then. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces The Nuance Life. Elise Knapp is our managing director. The Nuance Life is listener supported. Go to patreon.com slash the nuance life. For $5 each month, you'll receive an entire bonus episode of The Nuance Life. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Dylan Garvin is the composer and performer of our ad music. For more information about The Nuance Life and to connect with us through our weekly email, visit pantsuitpoliticsshow.com.